In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Just a reminder that Diet Starts Tomorrow is a podcast for entertainment purposes only. It is not a medical podcast and does not constitute medical advice. Always seek the advice of a physician or a health professional. Betches Media presents Diet Starts Tomorrow. I stand behind my decision to avoid salad and other disgusting things. With hosts Remy Casimir. I'll have what she's having. And Emily Lubin. Remember, shoot like you have a secret. We're here to amuse your boosh. Hello and welcome to Diet Starts Tomorrow. I'm Emily. And I'm Remy. And today we're joined by a very exciting guest, Asher Larmy, a.k.a. The Fat Doctor. Welcome, Asher. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really grateful to be here. It's going to be so much fun. I can tell already. Now we're very excited. <laughs> we're so happy to have you. We've been really looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a little background in your uh, medical experience? I know that you're a general practitioner. Mm-hmm. You're based in the UK, but just a little bit about your medical background for the listeners. So I graduated from medical school in 2003. That is officially now 20 years ago. And that makes wow. me feel a little bit old. But that's okay. <laughs> old is, you know, wisdom. Older is wise. Yeah. Older is experience. So that's it's fine. Fun. So I graduated in 2003. And then um, our system is quite different to the to the American system and, and to other countries around the world because we have a free health service, right? Mm-hmm. So our nationalized health service means that most of your health care will take place within general practice or family practice or primary care or whatever you call it, wherever you live. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I do a little bit of everything. I do quite a bit of psychiatry, pediatrics, obstetrics, um, gynecology, uh, you name it, cardiology. You very rarely end up seeing a doctor in a hospital. Yeah, a specialist. You know how like in the States, maybe you might book in to see a specialist. Say you need to have like, I don't know, a gynae, work up you'd probably go yeah. and see a specialist straight away well you wouldn't in in the uk you come see me and if mm-hmm. i identify anything that i think okay hang on that's that needs treating or that needs something then you go and see a specialist gynecologist so mm. i have quite an interesting job in that i i get to, to meet everybody all kind of ages or you know all everything all, all genders all the works it's quite a fun job so yeah i've been doing that since officially i mean i fully qualified as a general practitioner in 2009 That is wild to me. I don't know, Emily, if you're shocked, but I'm shocked. The fact that it's all encompassing, you know, because we literally we have so many specialists for literally everything, like even an internist. I feel like you have different internists for different things here. Right. Absolutely. And I mean, that's not to say that you can't be like a pulmonologist in the UK. Of course you can. But you would only see, I don't know, about like a very small percentage of people with respiratory conditions. So Mm. any condition like asthma or like emphysema or any of the like regular conditions that can be managed pretty easily with medication stuff, like you wouldn't really see that because you don't need to. And it's the same, like you always go and see a pediatrician, right? Until Mm -hmm. you're an adult. But in the the UK, 
you won't be seeing a pediatrician unless you are really, really sick. Like, you you know, pediatricians oh. only deal with specialist stuff. So I, I get to see kids, which is wonderful. And I think a lot of general practitioners in other parts of the world maybe don't get to do stuff like that. And mental health as well. You wouldn't see, I mean, chances of seeing a psychiatrist are, you know, again, almost zero. You'd probably see a psychologist maybe and, 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 a, and a general practitioner to manage any of your kind of, you know, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar, all of that stuff. And sometimes it gets managed by a psychiatrist, but if you're well, you know, if you're stable, then you often don't even need to see a psychiatrist. You just see your general practitioner, which is, like I said, it's a fun job. really uh -huh. is. You never know what you're going to get. <laughs> I'm just trying to visualize your office because I'm like, there are probably so many different, there's the therapy room, there's the gyno wing, like <laughs> you need oh, yeah, but, so much I mean, equipment. <laughs> with the with the national health service you know we're, we're a nice socialist country it's not mm -hmm. fancy you know but okay. basic stuff you know you don't get a gyny wing you get a table with you know with with the accessories the That's leg clamps <laughs> the stirrups no i wing. mean yeah okay you have like a set of tongs for yes. a speculum <laughs> <laughs> maybe not that bad but we're somewhere somewhere in between like it's not back in the middle ages but it's definitely not perhaps what you'd be used to either mm -hmm. but it is a really it's a fun job because you really have to know a lot of things about a lot of different conditions and it, mm -hmm. it i think it places me you know in the, some of the work that i've been doing i've found that uh, it, it's 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 put me in a good position that I, I am able to talk on, you know, polycystic ovarian syndrome or menopause. Because yeah. yeah. if you have the menopause, you don't see a gyno; you see a GP. So, you know, I know mm. about the menopause. I know about diabetes. I also know about mental health. I know about stuff that affects kids. So, it puts me in quite a you know fortunate position, I guess, in some of the work yeah. that I do that is in general practice. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, no, and I think that's why it's perfect that you're on this podcast because we have a lot of questions pertaining to a lot of those subjects. Okay, I'm ready. But before we, we get to that, can you tell us about the beginnings of The Fat Doctor? Yeah, so The Fat Doctor is very simple. It started off as a weight loss blog. Um, mm -hmm. I It was very recently, it was 2020. It was, I think, and partly midlife crisis, partly my way of coping with the pandemic. As someone who hadn't even had like social media accounts, I decided I'm going to have, I'm going to start a blog. Um, <laughs> I don't know what possessed me, but the idea, the idea of the name, the fat doctor, it was meant to be ironic. I was going to lose all this weight and then I was going to be like the fat doctor, get it? Ah. Um, and yeah, yeah, I thought it was really clever. Mm -hmm. My first post ever blog post was how to lose weight the hard way. Oh yeah, I was I was, I was, was not a particularly pleasant person. Oh, they started in at a very different place, yeah. <laughs> I'm in a very, very different place. And the only way that I could explain that is once your eyes are opened, it's very difficult to shut them again. And oh. I went from weight loss blogger to failed weight loss blogger in a very mm -hmm. short amount of time because diets tend to fail pretty quickly. And then uh, to why do diets fail all the time to anti-diet. Uh, and then once I got into the anti-diet space and I, I met people and I started reading papers because I'm one of these people, you know, I like to I like to see the evidence myself. I want to physically read it on a piece of paper. I need yeah. to, I don't want to be told it. So I'd go and I'd do like deep dives into all the literature. And the more I did, the more I was thinking, like, this doesn't make sense. This is like the complete opposite of everything I've ever been taught. How is this possible? So like I said, your eyes are opened and then it's very hard to shut them. But what has changed yeah. over the last three years is my sort of passion for challenging the medical profession. You know, not, not only because we're we're, we're not practicing evidence-based medicine, but also because we are harming so many people 
just in the way that we practice medicine. And that feels like something that somebody has to say something about. And there aren't that many doctors who really are, I suppose, in that position where they feel like they need to say, advocate. Yeah. 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 And I could imagine that it's hard to speak out about a lot of these things, especially because you are still deeply entrenched in the medical community. And I'm sure that you get pushback from some people in the medical community. I am. I I am losing my license to practice medicine. It's it's dying it's dying a slow and sad death, and I'm trying to hold on to it as much as I can. But one way or the other, I think I'm going to lose my license to practice because people just don't want to work with me. And you know, is that grounds for losing a license? They're trying to make it stick. Um, I suppose I am bringing the profession into disrepute. I think that's the the way that they will take my license away from me because <sighs> I, people will lose faith in their doctors if I continue to do the work that I do. And actually, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I'm i not trying to make people lose faith in their doctors, but I, I want people to challenge whether their doctor can be trusted. And I mm-hmm. guess that's, that is not what the medical profession is really, you know, because the medical profession sort of regulates itself mm-hmm. for the most part. There's very mm-hmm. few regulatory bodies anywhere in the world. And, and if they, there are any, it's, it's often doctors who are a part of those regulatory bodies. And so it's, it's you know, we we can silence a lot of things that are going on. And if there are people who speak out, generally they tend to be silenced. And, uh, you know, as I said, my colleagues don't want to work with me. I think they've made that quite clear. Um, so I'm, yeah, yeah, the medical profession is not ready to hear what I have to say, but that doesn't mean I'm going to stop saying what I have to say. And my, my I'm willing to... I'm willing to risk my medical license. And, it, you know, if that's if that's what happens and I lose my license, then I lose my license. It's it's not going to be something that stops me from doing what I do. And I feel like a lot of that is maybe people thinking that you're coming from a feelings perspective rather than a facts perspective. Yes. Yeah. And how would you respond to that? Uh, look, as I said, I like to read. I've read a lot of papers. Yeah. I, I am not willing to lie to anyone because, again, that's a different reason to take my medical license. If I am mm. if I am distributing misinformation, mm-hmm. like, for example, I'll give you an example. A lot of the doctors that uh, spoke out about vaccines, uh, I'm not going to get into the tension and the you know sure. the challenges, but, you know, there were doctors that were speaking out about vaccines and, and some of them got into trouble because they were told – uh, that you know you're bringing the medical profession into dispute, and your and people are not able to ch- to trust doctors in through what you're saying, but they didn't have any evidence, right? Like there there, there was no evidence at the time. I am mm-hmm. standing on a mountain of evidence, a yeah. mountain, and I've never ever ever made a statement without having at least two or three papers to back it up. There is yeah. Anything that I have said this far that you could say, you said this, and I'd be like, oh, do you know what? It was wrong. I mean, I'm sure people don't like my opinions, but when I'm stating a fact, I mm-hmm. am stating a fact or a st- I'm making a statement based on evidence. And there's and no studies. question about it. Yeah. The studies are, and I'm not just talking, I'm also very good at assessing whether or not a study, study is good quality. So I'm not just talking like one study that was written by one person. I'm looking at systematic reviews, I'm looking at meta-analyses, I'm looking at studies with good data. I'm I'm actually assessing whether the, you know, the they the actual method of the study is adequate enough for me to listen to. And I, I do that mm-hmm. both ways because sometimes I'll look at a study that says if you lose weight, you know, you'll cure your diabetes. And I'll be like, okay, show me what you should you did. And I'll look at it and I'll go, no, that's not what you showed. I mean maybe you think that's what you showed, but here's the five points that I can point out that are 
that clearly demonstrate that that's not what you showed. But equally, if somebody, you know, if I'm looking at a study that says you, you can be fat and healthy, I will, I will, I will look at it and I will be just as um, stringent, as, as critical of it, and yeah. yeah, stringent. And so I, I don't ever base my statements on studies I can't trust <laughs> because I don't want to, you know, spread dis- misinformation. Yeah, I really admire that. And I think everybody should follow Asher on social media because your posts are honestly fascinating. But I admire your activism, but more so how you always back it up with facts and are clearly very educated about many different topics. It feels like cat food has been the same forever. Smelly, boring, made of mystery ingredients. That's why you've got to try Smalls. Small's cat food is protein-packed recipes made with preservative-free ingredients you'd find in your own fridge. And it's delivered right to your door. Make the switch from kibble and give your cat a meal they'll love. We actually sent some Small's to my friend in Brooklyn who is fostering kittens, and they took to it right away. It is delicious. It is nutritious. It is easy to serve. Yum, yum, yum. Eat it up. Your cute kitty is descended from ferocious desert cats who hunted live prey. Even if your cat prefers to nap all day, they still need fresh, protein-packed meals for a balanced and healthy diet. Other brands fill their food with mysterious meat byproducts, artificial flavoring, and preservatives with names I don't even want to try to pronounce. After switching it up to Smalls, 90% of cat owners reported overall health improvements. That's major. The team at Smalls is so confident your cat will love their product that you can try it risk-free. That means they'll completely refund you if your picky cat won't eat their food. Now is the time to make the switch to Smalls. Head to smalls.com slash DST and use promo code DST at checkout for 50% off your first order, plus free shipping. That's the best offer you'll find. But you have to use my code DST for 50% off your first order. One last time, that's promo code DST for 50% off your first order, plus free shipping. We have so many questions that we want to ask you, but we also have listener submitted questions. Mm -hmm. So, I I mean, we're going to get into the mud with it today. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I think one thing that our listeners really wonder as we talk about our stance of anti-diet and health at every size, a lot of people wonder, are there health risks associated with being obese? Mm. And this is something that you hear all the time, mm-hmm. that a higher weight is associated with certain health risks. And I would love to hear you speak to that. So we have to be very careful about the language we use when we make these statements, because the language can imply things that that, that we didn't mean to imply. There is no question that there is a higher rate of certain medical conditions in people who are fat. I tend to use the word fat rather than obese because I have issues okay. with the pathologizing language. But that's, yeah. I just want to explain that to your listeners just because mm-hmm. uh, I'm not comfortable with the pathologization of, of fatness and the term obesity. I've spent a lot of time researching how it came into being, what it means, how it's being used uh, to harm people. And so I tend to use the word fat as a very neutral descriptor, but for some people that can be quite troubling. So I just wanted to make that clear. But yeah, there is no question there is a higher uh, rate of certain medical conditions in fat people. There's also a higher number of fat people with certain medical conditions. You know, it works Mm. both ways. Uh, But (laughs) this is the only statement that we can make is that there is a higher rate, yes, But now when we want to get into the sort of why, why is there a higher rate? 
Then we start using words like risk, and 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 even if we don't mean it necessarily, it implies that the fatness itself, the adiposity, you know, the fat cells that are hanging around your, you know, belly or your buttocks or your thighs or whatever, that mm-hmm. that is what is causing the uh, the condition. In fact, nowadays people tend to talk about internal fat, you know, fat around the organs, and I mean, mm-hmm. this is a yeah. complete misnomer. I don't know who came up with this nonsense, but there is no evidence that fat physically around your organs is actually harming you in any way. It doesn't constrict the organs or anything. That's just mm-hmm. nonsense. But people people have been told, you know, that the fat itself is a problem. And there's just no evidence to show this. And I tell you the most simple way of knowing this, if you put somebody through liposuction and remove goodness knows how much of their fat and then you measure them, you know, three months later, you will see absolutely no difference in their health. It's not about removing fat. So people say, oh, well, it's about the lifestyle. You know, you're fat because of a lifestyle. But that's not true again. We have so much information. And I just, I'll name some things, genetics, epigenetics, gut biome, the insulin um, pathway, and, uh, and, and stress, chronic stress, all of these things are linked. Just, these are just a few, by the way, there's so many more are linked to how we store weights and the shapes of our bodies. So again, it's nothing to do with how much you eat and how much you exercise, because studies have shown that and studies have shown massive health improvements through exercise that doesn't impact your weight. So again, it's not because of the actual fat cells or the fat around your heart, or whatever people are saying. It's not about the lifestyle. What it is about, and I think it's really important to say, is about the, the quality of care and just the quality of life that people in larger bodies experience. So we have lots of studies that show that if you're fat, your your healthcare is poorer. Your doctors mm-hmm. are less likely to listen to you, less likely to investigate and examine and, and treat you. Um, you are also far less likely to trust your doctors and want to see your doctors. And because of that, we see lots of delays in treatment. And if you were to look at studies that say, you know, this many people have, you know, died of COVID, classic example, it's it would be very fascinating if we had some data on how many of them had delayed treatment and whether we could look into delayed treatment and explain a lot of those deaths um, that we weren't able to explain before. Now, we've done it in the past. We did it with, for example, the swine flu pandemic. We were able to demonstrate that actually it was the delay in treatment that caused the swine flu deaths, not the fat itself. Mm. Um, so it's this is a really complex thing. What I, what I want to remind people is that the body is amazing and we do not have the first clue about it. Everything we think we know about the body, you know, represents a tiny fraction of what we what actually is going on in our bodies. And so we have to look at this data that we have and through the lens uh, of, of, of critical interpretation that isn't centered around like bias, confirmation, what we call confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, there isn't any decent literature out there, unfortunately, that, that looks at all the different things that could be involved here. So weight cycling, weight stigma, chronic stress, genetics. As I said, there's so many things. Unless we factor these in these things into our interpretation of the data, then we're we're not able to make any other come to any other conclusions. That's the word I'm looking for. So mm-hmm. Yes, there are higher rates, and no, there really isn't any evidence that being fat increases your risk of, and then insert medical condition here. I don't care which one you want, insert a medical condition, and I will be able to show you the studies that support this. Mm-hmm. There's just no evidence. And so you, there isn't a health risk. And then people say to me, but what about if you're like really fat? You know, like 
600 pounds fat. You know, like that, they love to go for 600 because of obviously of that TV nice show. It's a nice life. round number. Yeah. Yeah. They never say like 575. It's very weird <laughs> to me. Okay. Um, but of course, you know, that just goes to show what propaganda can do, right? It's one TV program, one, one, one title and and it's changed a lot of how we perceive people because very fat people are 600 pounds 600 pounds um, every 600 time 600 exactly every yep. single time like mm-hmm. not a pound off one way or the other so and those yeah, a thousand and the, pound sisters both 600 pounds who kn- <laughs> how <laughs> i forgot about that when i keep getting advertised that <laughs> Um, thousand pound sisters I, that's an american thing clearly i've not heard of it so oh. <laughs> check <laughs> but, it out <laughs> but just but just good, good good maths i like it um but yes it, it, there isn't a, a cut off uh, we really can't speak on um anything really anybody that's got a bmi over 40 because people with a bmi of over 40 aren't even included in medical studies like ever can you so, explain what f- a bmi is because we have <laughs> a lot of questions about that coming later yeah. Yeah. So body mass index is a complete waste of time. So that's the first thing I'll tell you. Okay. Uh, it's, it's history is pretty gruesome and horrible. And if you look at the history of the BMI, you'll realize that it's not something that we should be particularly proud of. It is uh, based in eugenics. Literally, the guy who came up with it was a eugenicist mm-hmm. uh, who was a race scientist, and he um, was not a great man. But the problem, the BMI is basically the body mass index stands for, it's a measure of your um, weight over height squared. So it's, it's, it's really okay. a measure of your weight to height ratio. And the problem is that people use it as a way of a diagnosing this condition obesity. It's the only way to diagnose the condition obesity is to have a BMI of over thirty. It's a it's a math problem or it's math. a calculation. Yeah, yeah. And there are like a hundred calculators on the internet in case you don't know how to do this particular map. Don't worry, they've got an app for that. Mm-hmm. Many apps for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the BMI in of itself is very problematic. Uh, but but what what it, what people think it means? So people think BMI is a good way to assess your health. It's it's a marker of your health. But studies have shown that it gets it wrong three out of five times. It's inaccurate for about fifty percent of people who are in the higher BMI categories are actually perfectly healthy. And I'm talking about cardiac health and metabolic health right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, there are lots of different ways to measure health, but I'm talking about blood pressure and diabetes and all of that stuff. So fifty percent of people who have a abnormally high BMI will be healthy. And more importantly, um, about a third of people who have a quote unquote normal BMI will be unhealthy. And sometimes I think that's the more dangerous part because a lot of people will be like, my BMI is normal, therefore I am healthy. And Mm -hmm. doctors will look at them and go, oh, your BMI is normal, so I'm not going to test for blood pressure or diabetes or this, that, because I can assume that you're normal because you're you're thin. Mm -hmm. Actually, a third of people will be walking around with, you know, cardiometabolically unhealthy, but be under the impression that they're healthy because of their body mass index. So it's doing everyone a disservice. It's it's doing literally everyone a disservice. And we mm-hmm. wouldn't use any other measure that had like that poor and accuracy. That you takes know, we nothing else into account except for right. two numbers. Yeah. Just literally two numbers and yeah. two numbers that uh, that have uh, your height, your weight and your height both massively and, and prim- primarily are determined by your genetics. So, you know, you're, you're, what are you measuring exactly? I'm not sure, but it's it's predominantly genetics. Like you said, there are BMI calculators on the Internet and you can look it up and they usually have different categories, which is underweight, mm-hmm. normal weight, mm-hmm. over and then overweight, sometimes obese. And now 
I, I go back and forth about the term obese. And I know you said you, do, you prefer not to use the term obese. But now I'm seeing, especially in the conversation about semaglutide mm-hmm. injections, a lot of people want to categorize obesity as a chronic illness. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to know your thoughts on that because I've gone back and forth about that. I, I do think that some people think that it would be helpful mm. to categorize obesity as a chronic illness because then it can be treated as such and their health problems that they might be experiencing can be acknowledged. However, it does also other people even more than we already are by categorizing them not only as obese, but as chronically ill. Right. And 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 then one thing I want to put in here is, of course, there is I'm not going to speak to this because I'm not an expert, but I think that the way that insurance companies, um, you know, and and healthcare, when there are insurance companies involved, I think some people are making arguments that specifically relate to that. And I'm not going to speak to that because that's not something I'm an expert in. But in terms of like pathologizing this condition, we went from people are fat and therefore ugly, which is where we were some time ago. Mm. Um, And then, you know, historically we used, fatness as a way of measuring a person's race and a way of measuring a person's wealth and status and Mm -hmm. education and all sorts of things. So we've used weight to categorize people, you know, fat, thin or whatever for a long time. Health only came into it in the last 100, 150 years. And it started off because of insurance. Amazingly enough, it was the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company that first came up with the sum, a sum, a calculation Mm. that determined whether a person was healthy or not. And of course, that involved their weight. And since then, a lot of decisions have been made on calculations that look at weight. And, And our our conversation has changed. We went from, you know, lose some weights to actually this is a medical condition and you can't lose some weight. Now, I agree with that part. I agree with that it's difficult, if no, it's nigh on impossible to lose weight. In fact, up to 98% of people of, of, of weight loss attempts fail. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean to say that it's a medical condition. With a medical condition, you have to have uh, some thought part, some sort of common pathological process going on, right? Some some kind of like, you know, a set of symptoms, a set of signs that you can say this is common to everyone with this medical condition. So if you're diabetic, everything, doesn't matter who you are, you will always have high blood sugar. That's what, that's how we, you know, diagnose you because of your high blood sugar. But with fatness, what do we have in common with each other apart from the fact that we're fat? Like we won't all have the same bodies on the inside, (laughs) on the outside. Uh, Fatness doesn't necessarily mean that your heart works a certain way or your liver works a certain way, your pancreas works a certain way. So I don't find, I don't see how we can categorize it. Furthermore, to diagnose something, you need diagnostic criteria. And as I've said, the only diagnostic criteria that exists is the body mass index. And that's massively flawed. So that's also problematic. And and I also, you know, that there are all these conditions that have become synonymous with fatness, like pre-diabetes and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and mm-hmm. diabetes and heart disease and certain things. And people are like, well, we, you know, we have these conditions, we are fat, therefore it's a chronic disease. But no, you, you're a fat person with diabetes. That's what you are. You are not an obese person and that diabetes is somehow part of your you know, quote unquote obesity. No, you're just a fat person with diabetes. And if you want to treat you, treat your diabetes. I will argue over and over again today and every time that we should never, ever, 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 ever prescribe weight loss, ever, ever, ever to anybody. There is Mm -hmm. never 
ever a good reason to prescribe weight loss to anyone. And that will be my answer to every question you ask me about weight loss. So I might as well get it out there now. We should never do it. Warmer weather is finally back. After so many cold months, it's nice to get outside and soak up the sun. But the springtime always brings those unwanted guests, pollen and seasonal allergies. April showers bring spring flowers and sniffly noses and stuffed up sinuses. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. I suffer from seasonal allergies. I just had them hit the other day. I couldn't breathe through my nose at all. And I popped a Claritin and it was like night and day. I'm a huge fan of Claritin. I use it on the regular and it always helps when we're making that transition from winter to spring, which is when my allergies flare up. Mainly it's my sinuses that get so clogged and the Claritin just clears it right up. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients and just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy throat and nose, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Ready to live your life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. I have a question just uh, we're going to leave the word obesity after this, but there is something yeah. called the obesity paradox, which I wonder about all the time and everybody who doesn't know about it. The obesity paradox is the finding in some studies of a lower mortality rate for overweight or obese people within certain subpopulations. And the paradox has been observed in people with cardiovascular disease and cancer. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no question about this. And I'll speak to one of the most common ones. Again, I bring up diabetes a lot because it is the one that is most associated with being fat. Um, mm-hmm. It is, you know, where, where in the UK, you have endocrinologists who are specialists in diabetes and obesity, like it's one condition, mm-hmm. you know? Oh, wow. Yeah, which of course it's not. But so I will speak to diabetes because uh, I've recently been doing, I'm getting a masterclass ready. And so I've been doing a lot of research and getting all the papers out. There are studies that show without a question of a doubt, if you are fat, when you are diagnosed with obesity, you will live longer than if you're thin, no doubt. There are studies that show that if you remain fat throughout your diabetes, you are less likely to die. People who lose weight when they are diabetic are more likely to die. There are studies that show that if you gain weight in diabetes, it will have zero impact on your cardiovascular outcome. So you're less like, it it won't impact whether you die, whether you uh, have a heart attack or a stroke or any of these things which are associated with diabetes. Like these are not just like a few numbers. We're talking meta-analyses of several studies and we're talking about Mm. tens of thousands of people involved in this data. We had our friends on who have two different types of diabetes and we were discussing why type one covers the uh, monitor at the end of it and it doesn't cover it covers it for Sam but it doesn't cover it for Gastor who has type 2 by the insurance company by the insurance right. companies yeah and yeah. Sam after we stopped recording was like I think it's because I could die like and Gastor is less likely to die yes well I mean I mean it, uh, between type 1 and type 2 that's that's true anyway mm. but in terms of like people who are in a large body you know I so I got type 2 diabetes a couple of years ago no, mm-hmm. last year, maybe. And, uh, you know, I was very reassured about the fact that I was fat when I was diagnosed with it. And, 
I hadn't lost any weight. My my spouse uh, lost a ton of weight when he got diabetes. So he also developed at the same time with me, which was crazy. It was post COVID. Um, wow. But he like lost like three stones suddenly, just like that. And we were like, what is going on? Something's not right. And all of a sudden he developed that. A that stone diagnosis. is like- and a- He is definitely more high risk than me. And he's the, you know, the much slimmer one of the two of us. Uh, there's no question that he is a higher risk than I am and will continue mm-hmm. to be. And we're much more careful about his monitoring and, and, and treating his diabetes. And we're much more relaxed about treating mine because I know what the data says. So mm. yeah, the obesity, I mean, you will see that in literally all the things. You, for example, if you've had a heart attack, if you're fat, you're more like you'll live longer than if you're thin and uh-huh. you have a heart attack. Like things that you just wouldn't assume: heart failure, kidney failure, and there are some cancers. Uh, pre yeah. premenopausal breast cancer is a classic example. You're far less likely to get that if you're fat. So, my grandmother, yeah. who everybody pointed to in my family as "Don't become nanny" because she's overweight and she has all these health problems, she had um, lung cancer twice in old age and mm-hmm. recovered. In her 80s, twice, in a large body, and her recovery was like nothing. And the lung cancer came from smoking way, 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 way earlier. Yeah, right. Uh, (laughs) No judgment. (laughs) But I say this to people all the time. Evolution, you know, we have evolved over tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. Our bodies do not like to lose weight. This is always a sign of 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 something going wrong as far as our bodies are concerned. And our bodies are able to manage small fluctuations in our weight, just like any other animal in the you know animal kingdom. There'll be periods of time when there's food scarcity and they'll drop their weights. And then there'll be periods of time when they'll stuff their faces because there's lots of food around them. And that's just how animals live. And human beings evolved to be like that as well. In the last you know couple of hundred years or whatever, food scarcity has become far less of a problem. Evolution hasn't caught up. It's going to take another 50,000 years or whatever for evolution to catch up. So yeah, we are obviously fatter than we were 300 years ago, maybe. Although chances are, if you go back, a long enough time in history, we probably would have looked like this because we needed to have all these fat stores to survive, you know, in in the in mm-hmm. the world. There are studies that show that people who go into ICU with sepsis far more likely to survive if they're in, you know, have a body mass index of over 30. Why is that? Because we can maintain blood pressure better because we have like energy stores, literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, our bodies are better equipped to, at dealing with the kind of stresses of medical interventions. So it doesn't surprise me about your, you know, your grandmother and other people like that. People always say, how many times do you see a 90-year-old obese person? And I'm like, folks, I do a lot of work with old old people. Our generations are getting older. I mean, most of my patients, a, a large proportion of my patients are over the age of 70. I only ever see fat 90-year-olds because thin 90-year-olds don't tend to survive that long. Most (laughs) of the 90-year-olds I see, of course, they're not as fat as they once were because you shrink as you get older. But yeah, most of them are sturdy. The ones that are getting to the ends of their life have been pretty sturdy throughout their lives. So Mm -hmm. this idea that there's no such thing as a fat 90-year-old is actually nonsense. It's the opposite way around. It's much less, you must less like to see a very frail, thin person in their 90s because you know, unfortunately, things happen. Hips get broken and, and people just can't recover as well because they mm-hmm. don't have fat on their bodies that they need to survive these things. So that's not to say that if you're thin, you're going to die early, by the way. I'm not suggesting that. No, I'm just I was going to say, that, I have another grandmother who's super thin and walks three miles a day. So... I, I, yeah, and so absolutely, <laughs> there are, there are, there are, and, and I'm sure that the fact that they're very active and the combination of genetics and all sorts of other things 
also make them healthy. So I don't want you to think that, oh, you know, that, that I'm saying the opposite, not at all. But I'm saying that it is yeah. absolutely possible to be fat all totally. your life and live into your 80s and 90s uh, without any problem. And it's also possible to be thin and die in your 40s. And it's also possible to be fat and die in your 40s. And like, folks, we can't control death and we can't control illness. We'd like to think we can, but we really, really can't. I do think it all comes back to a fear of death, yes. this obsessive need to control our mm-hmm. weights. Yes. And it's it's giving like an illusion of controlling our health Absolutely. a lot of the time. But that's why it's a paradox, too, is because we have this data and then people are just saying, isn't that bizarre? And stating instead of right. saying, oh, no, that's basis for thinking that it's going to be OK. And I think it's interesting what you said, Asher, like in the beginning, that it it wasn't about health for the longest time. It was mm-hmm. about looks and there were laws mm-hmm. about offending people in public. Mm-hmm. But when we started this podcast, I know a lot of the or when we started hosting it, obviously, we didn't start the podcast. A lot of my worries and a lot of people that were telling me their worries were, oh, you guys are being too positive, you know, and Mm. that is going to lend to a lack of health. And what you're saying is dangerous. And so that's why I want to ask these questions, because I never want to be saying anything dangerous to anyone. If any, look, I'll say it again, weight loss prescriptions are, are never okay. And uh, the reason I can confidently say that is because A, weight loss is pretty much unsustainable. The vast majority of people, and we know this, we have so many studies to show this. Uh, the second thing is that weight loss causes harm. So it causes harm in the short term. We all know, like when you're on a diet, you, you feel rubbish and you can list a whole bunch of symptoms, but it also causes harm in the long term. And here's the issue. If something causes more harm than it does good, then it's never okay. And in terms of long-term harm, we have uh, the physical effects on our body. So weight cycling, as I said, sometimes weight loss and weight gain actually is much more dangerous than, than just staying a steady weight, even if mm. that is a higher weight. Could you explain why weight cycling is unhealthy? Sure. So it puts the body under an incredible amount of stress. That's what I was going to say, actually. One of the harms that weight loss does is it, is it, is it, it starts off the chronic stress response. The chronic stress re- response is when your body is under, like literally it's it's experiencing stress on a chronic level, not like peaks and troughs like normal mm. we normally should, but it's chronic, it's constant. And we start releasing hormones like cortisol and, and you know, there's leptin and there's all sorts of other hormones that interfere with the insulin cycle, the insulin pathways that interfere with um, lipids or, co- uh, or, or cholesterol. It interferes with all sorts of organs, the kidney, the liver and all sorts of other things. And in doing so, it causes sometimes just, um, if we're lucky in the short term, it causes reversible damage, but in the long term, it causes irreversible damage. And that irreversible damage is going to impact your health in ways that we do not understand yet. Because as I said, we only understand a small part of the human body. So yeah, it's the chronic stress that's the problem. So what you'll find is people lose weight because it's not unsus- because it's not sustainable they'll gain weight and the weight loss and the weight gain is not the issue it is what your body is doing during that time of loss mm-hmm. followed by regain it's actually the hormones um that you're you know that you're releasing within your body from your adrenal cortex etc cetera, etc cetera, that are causing the damage and it also impacts things like your metabolic rates and uh and some another interesting field that we still don't know enough about is how it impacts your genetics how it turns certain genes on how it turns certain genes off and 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 how that will impact your health long term a lot of a lot of questions very few answers but we do know that it is that chronic stress response that is causing a lot of the problems 
Okay. But but I wanted to add, it's not just that. Also, when you start gaining weight psychologically, that impacts you. It impacts your self-esteem. It impacts your yeah. self-worth. Uh, you're you're more likely to be to have suicidal thoughts at that point in time. Also, dare I say, it, it's much you know, it's eating disorders. I mean, this is one of the biggest risks for eating disorders is this kind of dieting, and then it's the regaining weight that often causes the problems. So. That's another reason we shouldn't be prescribing uh, weight loss. And then the final reason is, that, is is the whole issue with weight stigma. We have what I would describe now as a two-tier healthcare system. We have a healthcare system for thin people and a healthcare system for fat people, and they are completely separate healthcare systems. You are thin and you have arthritis of the knee, you will be treated completely differently. If you've got fibroids, if you've got endometriosis, your treatment will be very different to somebody in a fat body, and that's problematic. Mm. So how do you try to figure out your health without looking at a scale? You know, what are other yeah. ways? Because that's that's mostly people's question. Yes. And this is I, I love that. That's such a good way of asking that question, because you really do not need a weighing scale. They didn't always exist. Mm. And we didn't use them as much as we do now. Throw it out. Yeah, And now they're in hotels. Uh, literally, you know, I told they're, Emily they're there's a hotel everywhere. that I went to and my scale there. It was called Thinner. Yep, I've seen that one. Oh, Horrifying. Right. So we we lived in a world where that just didn't happen once upon a time. And it, when I was studying, and like I said, it's been 20 years, but we didn't weigh children um, the way that we weigh them now. And we never calculated their body mass index. Like that wasn't allowed in, in my day. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> um, what does weight, how do we look at our health? A brilliant question without using a weight scale. First of all, we have to remember how interconnected our physical health is with our mental, emotional, social, financial, environmental health, okay? The social determinants of health, we call them the social determinants of health, it's a very crude way of describing you know, how the environment around you impacts your health, massively important. Um, your mental, if your mental health is poor, your physical health can never be good. If your physical health is poor, you can still have good mental health, but it doesn't work the other way around. Poor mental health is always equals poor physical health. So um, when you're assessing your health and you're thinking to yourself, am I healthy? You need to look at all of these things. Am I, you know, even financial health is impacts you, but, you know, especially mental and emotional well-being. Where am I at in the mental, emotional well-being score? Now, if you're interested in your physical health, actually it's much harder to make predictions based on your physical health so by that what i mean is you know you could have for example really high blood pressure but it's not impacting your physical health on a daily basis what it's doing is it's increasing your risk of having a heart attack or a stroke or something like that down the line and so a lot of us want to know well how do i stop myself from having a heart attack when i'm young i, I don't want to have a heart attack how do i stop myself from having yeah. a heart attack the reality is, <laughs> as you get older, your risk increase. The biggest risk for any illness is age. <laughs> that's followed by gender. Like that's it. It's age, possibly, and, and then gender. you do get sick as you get older, and you could do everything in your power that you think you need to do to prevent yourself from having a heart attack, and you could still have a heart attack. So I always say to people that there are things we can do. Um, and certainly a lot of people talk about diet and exercise and I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, having a nutritious diet, adding things into your diet is always a good thing. I'm not a fan of restricting, but adding things in never harms anyone. People yeah. talk about exercise and yeah, there are so many reasons to exercise. Like I could name at least 10, but I will always say to people, but as an individual, I want you to think about how it will improve your health and how it will, how it will harm your health. If you're somebody, for example, 
that has an eating disorder is exercising going to harm you more than it will help you? If you're somebody who has chronic fatigue syndrome or chronic pain, is exercising going to cause you a lot of pain? If so, we can do other things to improve other your health. Other types of exercise too. Yeah, like find pick your other, adventure. <laughs> right, pick your adventure and, and make it suit you. And, 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 and also, again, take your social health into well in, and well-being into consideration as well if you're working like three jobs and you don't have that much time to exercise you know you might want to say okay well i'll do what i can but i will focus more on this instead because there are a wide variety of health sort of lifestyle interventions R- reducing stress is one getting good sleep is another one you know wearing spf on your skin if you're light skinned like there's so many mm. things you could be doing i'm um, peeling right so- now so you do the things that you can do because you're like, okay, putting SPF on my skin, that's that's easy to do. But actually going to a gym for an hour and a half when I'm working two jobs and I have no time for my kids, maybe that's not the thing I'll do. And always remember that no matter how many lifestyle interventions you make, that has a very small, we say roughly about 10 to 15% impact on your overall health. 85% wow. is is controlled by things that is is determined by things out of your control Mm. so i mean this is a crude assessment and it's not perfect numbers but i've read that a few times in studies so you know you're focusing on the the minutiae sometimes to your own detriment because you're making yourself mentally and emotionally more unwell by trying to get all these physical things done whereas if you just loosened up the reins a little bit and focused on you as a whole human being and said to yourself yeah do you know what i can't do that but that's okay it's not the end of the world you'd probably end up happier and then probably end up healthier Mm-hmm. So basically obsessing over your health to a certain point becomes mm-hmm. unhealthy. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. You've said it perfectly. Guys, as many of you know, I've been on an alcohol-free journey. Please don't hold it against me that I just said journey, but I have. And one thing that I've really missed on this journey is beer. But now with athletic brewing, I'm able to get that delicious beer-like taste in my mouth without any of the alcohol. It's amazing. Just so you guys know, I used to love sours. I'm a big sour drinker and I really miss that taste. And now I don't have to miss out on it. It's amazing. Whether you're trying to cut back or you just want to explore a non-alcoholic alternative, athletic brewing is often a game changer. They offer a variety of different full-flavored brews with no alcohol allowing you to sip and celebrate anytime and anywhere. Do you like hazy IPAs, sweet fruity sours? Now you can enjoy this style without the hangover the next day. They offer hassle-free delivery right to your door when you order at athleticbrewing.com. Athletic brews bevs you can drink anytime, anywhere, and still go right back to whatever you were doing. It's a great fit for parenting, playing sports, watching sports, doing chores, late nights, and early mornings, so you can imbibe without worry. Try Athletic Brewing non-alcoholic beers for yourself. Use code DST to get 15% off your first order at athleticbrewing.com. That's code DST at checkout for 15% off your first order. Near beer, exclusions and conditions apply. Athletic Brewing Company, fit for all times. This episode is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick but can't always find the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you, Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for this season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. 
Newly is a subscription clothing rental service. For just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles each month. Access to thousands of styles from more than 400 brands. There are no fees, late fees, damage fees, or fees to pause or cancel. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X as well as petite and maternity. And you always have the option to buy what you love. I love Newly. I've rented so many cute things from there, and I've even made a few purchases from there. And They're always spot on. They have so many brands that I honestly could never afford in real life, so it's great to be able to rent them. Newly is a great value at $98 a month for any six styles, but right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code DST20. Just go to Newly, that's N-U-U-L-Y dot com, and enter the code DST20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y dot com, newly with two U's, with code DST20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. Do you mind if we do a rapid fire of a bunch of questions? We got so many listener questions and we want to answer as many as we can. Let's do it. We'll go back and forth like Pong. All right. (laughs) Does weight affect my posture? No, your posture affects your posture. Nothing to do with your weight. Okay. <laughs> is it better to be a little overweight or underweight as you age? Overweight. The studies say. I'm lifting weights. Can I truly ignore the number on the scale? I'm stronger, but heavier. Yeah, that's great. You're lifting weights. Good for you. Uh, you know, I hope you're enjoying it. And I hope it's, um, it's something that you look forward to. And you're not doing it just because, you know, you feel like you have to. But I promise you, every study that I have ever read about exercise shows that um, that is beneficial for you and it doesn't matter what it does to your weight, the number of scales. In fact, you're right. It will increase because you're increasing your muscle mass. Carry on and never weigh yourself again. Now, this one's a little bit open-ended, but what is the real truth about high blood pressure and weight? There is no link between high blood pressure and weight. Thank okay. you. Being in a... Being, having a higher weight does not increase your risk of blood pressure and vice versa. Um, they are both considered, well, having high blood pressure uh, can be managed predominantly with medication, but there are certain things you can do. Reducing salt in your diet is one of them. Uh, there's evidence that reducing alcohol in your diet is another, but losing weight will not impact your blood pressure at all. There's no study that shows that they will change over a long period of time. Over the short period of time, in the beginning of any diet, in the first six months or so, you will always see a change in all of these things because your body's trying to compensate for what's happening to it. Mm. Uh, but uh, it levels out after that and returns to normal within about a year. Okay, what about cholesterol web? regulation? Literally the same thing. This is exactly the same thing. Uh, cholesterol is, and your lipids are, may, are predominantly managed by your insulin and your insulin pathway and a few other hormones. But yeah, so, uh, Chronic stress can impact your cholesterol levels, but otherwise it's it's not just because you're fat doesn't mean that you eat too much fat or that your fat is somehow seeping into your body and causing you to have high cholesterol. The two are not related. Right. But how do you, okay, so I think this person was asking, how do you regulate cholesterol besides the things like dieting? And, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I hear you. So there are some, there's some evidence that there are um, these sterols, plant sterols that you can find in a lot of like cholesterol lowering like drinks and butter and you know like you can buy these products over um in the the supermarket the grocery store and they can help with cholesterol ultimately uh it's it's more 
if your cholesterol is high enough, it's it's a case of taking a statin. But also, it's also, do we need to treat cholesterol? And how quickly do we need to treat cholesterol? And the studies are all that are not very clear. Nowadays, we actually treat your risk with a cholesterol tablet rather than treating the cholesterol itself. And by that, what I mean is, if we think you're high risk, we'll give you a cholesterol tablet, even if your cholesterol is normal, and we won't monitor your cholesterol. Like we won't sort of, it, it doesn't matter whether or not your cholesterol improves, we'll still give you that cholesterol tablet. So hmm. but we, we kind of, you know, our the way we manage cholesterol has definitely changed. But I think, you know, statins have been shown to reduce your risk of heart disease by about a quarter, by 25%, whether or not your cholesterol is high. So make of that what you will. Okay. How to deal with PCOS other than birth control? <laughs> uh, there are other ways of managing PCOS. In terms, I, I'm, I'm guessing this person means in terms of symptoms. Yeah. And I think it depends on what your symptoms are. I would treat the symptom. You can't really treat the underlying issue. Mm. So you can't treat PCOS. It is, it is something that you have. Uh, weight loss will not impact it. In fact, it will probably, you know, in, in many cases, uh, you'll end up with weight cycling and that can make it worse. So I would treat the individual symptom and uh, I would probably come to my PCOS masterclass because it's such a complicated thing to say, but there mm. isn't, a, there isn't a, a magic pill that's going to fix this. Now, this question is what blood tests should women ask for every year? I think we could expand that to what do, should people, people are, get yeah. every year, but also are there specific yeah. blood tests that women <laughs> should be getting more so yeah. than men? Okay, first thing, don't get blood tests every year. I know oh. <laughs> I know we're all doing this now. It's literally the worst thing that you could do. I do not I do not subscribe to that at all. In the NHS where you're uh, you know, where we're saving money. We do one one set of blood tests, like just routine bloods. We do one set when you're 40 and one set when you're 75. That's it. If you have a medical condition, of course, we're going to be doing blood tests to monitor that medical condition. But just like random routine bloods, mm. America, I know you do this on a regular basis. Please we do it a lot. I, I love stop. my bloods. I know you do. Uh. I know you do. <laughs> and and what, what I say to people is, you know, you, you do it every year. And what I want to know is what happens if three, four, five months down the line, something goes wrong. You're not going to test them until the following, like the following, you know, yeah. seven months later. Yeah. We've become reliant on these tests. I learned in medical school, and I, I say this to this day, the clue to every single diagnosis is in the history. Even if I didn't have blood tests and I, and I lived in a world where I couldn't access blood tests, I still think I could do a pretty good job of being a doctor because the clue is in the history or in your case, the clue is in the symptoms. So mm. rather than getting bloods annually and therefore like being like, oh yeah, my cholesterol is good. Sure, in that exact moment of time, it's good. But what happens like three months later or six months later, you're far better listening to your body. And if your body is telling you something is wrong, getting the bloods done then. But I appreciate that for you, it has become like standard sort of like normality. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> right. And you're speaking to my soul right now because I hate getting my blood drawn. I hate it. Right. Oh, I but love my like, blood. Literally. There's literally, there's, let me put it this, there's no reason to do it. There's literally no reason to do it. There's no reason to get bloods. There's no reason to get like scans, full body scans or anything like that. Like just none whatsoever. And and actually it can be harmful because sometimes we pick up on things that are abnormal on bloods, but clinically aren't going aren't gonna to impact you at all. And I'll give you a real classic example. And this is a problem predominantly, again, only in America. And it is fueled very much by pharmaceutical industry. 
you've heard of the condition prediabetes, right? Yeah. And yes. in America, to get a diagnosis of prediabetes is very easy on your annual bloods. Like they'll be like, yeah, this is prediabetes. I want you to know that in the rest of the world, we don't do like prediabetes is not an issue. The WHO does not actually acknowledge such a condition exists. There was a study, a wow. Cochrane review from 2018 that made it very clear that prediabetes is not a thing. There are numerous experts from around the world, lots of organizations who have all stood up in solidarity and said there is no such thing as prediabetes. It's only America that has stood against the rest of the world and gone, yeah, you all say that, but we we believe in it. And that is problematic because people are being treated for a condition that is not real, which actually the treatment of itself, remember, every treatment comes with side effects and long-term risks. The treatments in themselves are actually causing more of a problem than they are helping. So these are the kind of things that I worry about. You're going to pick up mm -hmm. something that you're going to pathologize, which actually isn't pathological. And it gives a lot of very nefarious organizations like the pharmaceutical industry is one example, who will use that to their advantage. So again, uh, maybe that's the like slightly sort of tinfoil hat <laughs> answer to the question, but don't get your bloods done. Mm -hmm. That's my answer. Final but answer. just to clarify, yeah. just to clarify, if you sense that there is something wrong, oh. then get your blood drawn. If you sense that there's something wrong, go see the doctor, the specialist, or you know, it depends on where you are and how it works. But yeah, absolutely. Go see the specialist and say, this is what's happening inside my body and I know something is wrong. And then they should be doing all the, the bloods, right? Then then that's absolutely, that's, a, that's an investigative tool that we use to try and figure out what's wrong with you. But that's not the same as just randomly monitoring your bloods and picking random things that you just think, well, why are you even measuring? I don't even get why you're measuring that. Mm. Um, so beware of pathologizing things that aren't actually pathological because that has been demonstrated to, um, to, to cause more harm than good. And just FYI, the person who came up with the term prediabetes now says that it's the biggest mistake that he ever made and that we should only be monitoring your blood sugar once every three to five years. And that's if you're prediabetic. Not, if you're not wow. prediabetic, he's just like, don't monitor your sugar. Like I said, in the UK, you get it when you're 40. That's it. Not before. Wow. Yeah. So the last time I had my blood drawn, it was actually, it was supposed to be a pre-surgery thing. And mm -hmm. we discovered hypothyroidism, which fine. But there, we had a question about that specifically. Is managing a healthy weight when losing and gaining is so easy while having hypothyroidism? Yeah, there's no such thing as a healthy weight, so don't worry about okay. it. Okay, like your weight doesn't have anything to do with it. You, you treat hypothyroidism is one of the only conditions that we actually can treat pretty well, and don't. It's it's you know one of these conditions that I think ah, I can treat this. I don't have to worry about this. Where basically your your thyroid is not producing enough thyroid hormone, so we need to replace it with like thyroid hormone in tablet form. And that's pretty easy to do when we go by bloods. Again, you you had hypothyroidism picked up on your blood screen, which was pre-op, which again is another reason why you should have your blood stopped, yeah. right? You should do that yeah. pre-op. Totally. Um, <laughs> but but if it hadn't been picked up preoperatively, then chances are over a few weeks or months, you would have developed symptoms of hypothyroidism. You would have noticed that I would have gotten a goiter. I mean, I don't know if it would have, you might have caught it before then, but you Maybe. might have gotten yeah. a goiter. It could <laughs> yeah. Have been, yeah, you might have just been like, I'm cold all the time, or I'm feeling tired all the time. Something's wrong mm. with my body. What's going on? Mm -hmm. And you go and see your doctor and your doctor's like, well, let's do some bloods. And it, thyroid will definitely be included in the panel. And then, oh, you're hypothyroid. So sure, it was good that it, it was picked up then and it saved you getting tired all the time. But it, in I mean, that's like a positive story. But in general, there are more risks, I think. Yeah, yeah, with, yeah. With, 
with over pathologizing than there is the other way around. But yes. Oh yeah. No, I was just saying, cause before you were saying it's unhealthy to go back and forth when we're dieting, like it's, it's stressful yes. on your body. So I think Absolutely. this person was just kind of saying, how like, do I keep it level? No, don't keep it level. Leave it. Oh, I go see. With okay. It. Sorry. I should okay. make that really clear. Your body will naturally flow. If you're not interfering, okay. you okay. will find that there'll be times when you'll lose weight and there'll be times when you gain weight. And sometimes, like mm. for example, if you're really depressed or you're grieving, you might find that you lose quite a bit of weight. There's nothing you can do about yeah. that. It's fine for your body to naturally do what it's going to do because your body can naturally cope. It's when you're forcing your body to do something that it doesn't want to do that it's problematic. And if you have hypothyroid, your weight will fluctuate. There's no healthy. So just just go with the flow and let it go do with the its flow. thing. And it's, it's fine. Go with the flow. Trust the body. Mm -hmm. We actually got quite a few questions like this. I'm just going to read two of them that are a little similar. Is it okay if my weight fluctuates every year? And this person says, is it okay to gain 20 pounds in a year? Yes. Both of those things are fine. Carry on. Thank you. Also, <laughs> the person who's gaining 20 pounds is training for a marathon. I feel like that's a lot of muscle. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's impressive. But you know, you wouldn't know that if you, if you hadn't got weighed yourself. If you hadn't gotten you on the scale. Because you would have just looked at yourself in the mirror and you might have seen that your body changed, that you put on muscle, that your shape changed. But you wouldn't know what you weighed because why would you? You only know that because you got on a scale. So the, the moral of the story is don't get on a scale. Ever. Or the pants test. Some My, my parents always yeah. said, do it by your pants. Yeah. But then I'm yeah. always like, okay, I'll, I'm just going to buy bigger pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also a good solution. Also, they can sometimes shrink when you wash them. And then what do you do then? That's really problematic. So true. We had a bunch of pregnancy questions. Yes. Um, a bunch of them said, what is a healthy weight for pregnancy? I've heard so many different things. And how can I prepare for a plus size pregnancy? Yeah. What are the fertility risks with a high BMI? Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of a lot of these questions, I would direct you to my friend, Nicola Salmon. Mm -hmm. She is fat positive fertility or just Google the name Nicola Salmon, Salmon Like the Fish. And she's an expert in plus size. I mean, she's written a book literally about how to get pregnant in a fat body. And she answers all of those questions. She is an absolute living expert. And I always defer all the answers to her because I don't do the research because she's doing it for me. Um, not for me personally, but, you know, I'm always just like, mm -hmm. yeah, just ask Nicola. In terms of a healthy weight in pregnancy, there isn't one. Uh, please don't ever restrict in pregnancy. Do not do that to your body. You will harm yourself. I know there are some mm -hmm. people now who recommend weight trying to lose weight in pregnancy. And I yeah. had gestational diabetes in my last pregnancy and I tried to manage it with, with diet alone, without medication, which I probably regret now. But anyway, uh, in doing so, I had to massively watch what I ate and I had there were so many foods I didn't eat. I essentially went on a keto diet for about four or five months. And so I ended up not gaining any weight during the pregnancy. So I physically lost weight because obviously my baby was gaining mm -hmm. weight. And uh, that is... That is really harmful. Don't do that deliberately. You know, I mean, obviously I was managing gestational diabetes. So it was a different thing. But do not do that deliberately because you are putting yourself and your baby at risk. And for you, it's that kind of malnutrition. And certainly your recovery postpartum, you know, is, is going to be much worse if you've lost a ton of weight in pregnancy. There is no healthy weight in pregnancy. Some people gain like 
I don't know, like 30, 40 pounds in pregnancy. Some some people have this tiny little bowling ball that they carry around with them, and that's cool. Either way, it's absolutely fine. And if you trust your body once you've given birth, leave it alone. It will almost certainly return to whatever your kind of like baseline average weight is. It might take a year, it might take two, it might take a little while, it may take up to five years even, and you may have another baby in between then, and you might be thinking, oh, what's happening to my body? But actually, if you just leave it alone and just calm down, usually within five years, everything returns back to normal. Obviously, mm-hmm. you have a baby in between, it changes. But just give it a few years, trust your body, love your body, don't listen to anyone else, and don't weigh your body, and you'll be fine. Yeah, there was one question that said, how can, can I lose weight while pregnant? Don't do that. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> don't. <laughs> okay. Seems like a bad idea. Just yeah. you. It, how can you lose weight when your baby is growing? I mean, like your baby is gaining pounds. So if you're not gaining pounds as well, something's gone wrong. Yeah. Don't put your fetus on a diet. Yeah. Okay. Please. <laughs> we also got a bunch of questions about doctors and about the medical experience or the experience of going to the doctor, which we thought were interesting. Yes. Why do they need to weigh us at the beginning of every appointment? They don't. Okay. (laughs) They just do it for lots of reasons, but they don't need to weigh you. And my biggest thing that I say to people, the one way that you can really change the way your experience with the doctor's office is literally the moment they say to weigh you, just go, no, I don't, I don't, I do not consent to being weighed. Mm-hmm. I will. I do not consent. Use the word consent. I do not consent to being weighed, and then just walk off. Uh, no, and I, this applies to every single person, doesn't matter what size you are. Just don't. Just don't let them do it. There's never a reason. Uh, there is only like a handful of times certain drugs that we actually need to weigh you for, and we should tell you, I need your weight for this medication because I can't calculate the dose without it. But yeah. I'm talking like a handful of drugs. I'm talking yeah. like the most common one is a, a, a blood thinners, but. But really not mm. that many uh, anesthesia, but that's it. So don't let them weigh you full stop. Uh, oh, uh, sorry. And I should say, if you're losing weight, <laughs> then you should measure your weight because if you want to, weight loss is never a good thing. And if you're unintentionally losing weight, we should keep an eye on that and actually keep track of how quickly you're losing. If you're not trying to, and you are without trying to, there's a possibility that something's going wrong. And so perhaps we ought to wait, measure it then. Got it. They asked, how prevalent is anti-fat bias in the medical community? Uh, I think we learned that's pretty prevalent. But what steps are they taking to stop, if any? So one study showed 75% of medical students have intrinsic, like unconscious uh, medical bias, and two thirds have um, explicit sort of conscious uh, anti-fat bias. Sorry, did I say medical bias? I meant anti-fat bias. Mm -hmm. It's rife, and they're not taking any measures because... There is no reason to. What 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 it would be their reason to to change because they care about people. I think you're um you're assuming a lot of things about doctors that you need to stop assuming. Uh, doctors are not necessarily on your side. Um, doctors are not necessarily putting your best interest at heart. Doctors cannot be trusted to be um, sort of neutral. And whatever kind of prejudices you see or difficult challenges you see within the the society as a whole, you're going to see within the medical profession too. So mm-hmm. if most of society is anti-fat, most of medicine will be anti-fat. If most of society is racist, most of medicine will be racist. And don't assume that, oh, somehow doctors are immune. They're not. And actually, you know what? Like I've, as I said, been a doctor for 20 years. I have, I think, two, probably three colleagues that I've stayed in touch with after I've moved from my jobs. And that's because I don't want to be friends with doctors. And that's because 
doctors aren't necessarily great people, folks. And I'm sorry, but it's the profession that attracts a lot of people with problematic personalities in the same way that politics does, in the same way that the police force does. And I know people don't like to hear this, but as someone who has spent a lot of time with doctors, most of the people I met had uh, the kind of personality that I wouldn't want in someone who was treating me. And that's not all. I've met some great ones, but I'm talking like the majority Mm -hmm. of them. How do we um, so, find those great ones? Like, how do you find a good general practitioner? Sometimes they find you. Mm. <laughs> how do you find a good general practitioner? Because I, if I knew the answer to that question, I would be capitalizing on it and making some money off it. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I know, I, you know, I, I, I know people in your area, if you happen to be in, there are some good, um, like, weight neutral, kind of lists of weight neutral doctors. But I actually think we should be making more of an effort to sort of like have our own kind of Yelp within kind of like communities where we where we rate doctors in terms of how they treat us, not in terms of bedside like bedside oh, manner. Yeah. The, not the like receptionist was mean or whatever. No, I'm talking about this particular doctor and you can find them. You can find them, but these ratings are not particularly well managed or monitored, but it would be great to have like some kind of database. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. You, you can tell though, when you see a doctor by sort of saying, I don't wish to be weighed. I don't wish to discuss my weight. If they're very respectful of that, you're onto a winner. Stick with that one. Oh, yeah. Yes. And I I would also add that if you get an icky feeling at any point, you do not have to continue seeing that person. Yep. Trust your gut. Of course, we got the questions about Ozempic. Um, (laughs) Somebody asked, how hard is it or how easy is it to get prescribed Ozempic? I assume they mean if you do not have type 2 diabetes. Yeah. So first of all, we keep talking about Ozempic. It's driving me crazy because... This is not driving lic- everyone Ozempic crazy. Ozempic is not licensed for weight loss. Ozempic is a diabetic drug. The drug mm-hmm. itself is semaglutide. If you look at an Ozempic pen, it comes in any dose up to one, up to and including one milligram, right? I think there are like four different doses up to one milligram. It is used to treat type 2 diabetes. There is a study that showed it is not particularly effective at weight loss. We mm. go V, we go V, same drug, semaglutide, in a different pen up to 2.4 milligrams, okay? Two and a half times stronger than the strongest dose for diabetes. That's what we're using to treat weight loss. That is the only one that's licensed to treat weight loss. Do not take Ozempic for weight loss because A, it's not been shown to be very effective and B, diabetics need it. So stop using it, please. Now, um, I'm assuming when people say Ozempic, they mean we go B, how easy is it to get prescribed? Well, Weight Watchers just bought a company uh, mm-hmm. run by one Spencer, Dr. Spencer Nadolsky, who's quite Instagram famous. That company is literally just a telehealth company that pre- prescribes um, Wegovy and other similar drugs. So um, you can get it off Weight Watchers from what I can tell now. You can definitely get it online. It's pretty easy in the States. Uh, it's harder to get in other countries. Some countries have not even licensed it yet. Folks, I am literally running a masterclass on Friday. It's completely sold out, so I'm not trying to sell tickets or anything. But uh, <laughs> I can tell you a few facts, a few incredibly shocking facts that you really are not being told. And the main one is that when you're taking this medication, you will stop losing weight at around 10 months or so, between 10 months and a year. And then you will start gaining weight. And you will continue. Mm-hmm. Even if you continue even taking Even if you continue taking it. If you stop it, you will gain weight at an unprecedented rate. We have never seen weight, re- weight regain like this before at this rate, uh, you know, because people do tend to gain weight, but it tends to be slower. If you look at the projections and if you actually look at the charts, I've never seen 
anything like it in my life. So this is disturbing the more the yo-yo more than anything else. I mean, it's shocking amounts of yo-yoing. But more importantly, if you're taking the drug, you will start to regain weight between 10 months and one year. And we don't know how long it will take you to regain all the weight because we've only studied it up to two years. But we do know that in the second year, people gain something like 15% of the weight they lost. They regained within eight months. All right. This is going to shock a lot of people yeah. because I, you know, we've been having this conversation and and that people don't really know what the long term effects are. Yeah. But there I know there are some people who, the think, risks. Well, who cares about what would happen if I get off this medication? I'll just stay on it forever. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, there are people I who think, think that's that. all the housewives plans. And if the, yeah. if you, what you're saying is true, but which I, I assume it is, yeah, we're going to see work. some bounce back. We're going to see some people be, and I think I often wonder, like, what is the plan? But, you know, um, if you look back 20 years ago or so to Purdue, a different drug company selling a different drug for a different reason, they knew that people would become sort of tolerant to their dose of drug, right? And so people would start taking OxyContin and then like after a Mm. few weeks, whatever, it didn't work anymore. So what did they do? They bought out a stronger dose, higher dose, higher dose, higher dose, higher dose. And, and, And the problem is... The long-term implications of this medication are unknown, but I will say to you, it is messing with a healthy pancreas. Your pancreas is a small organ in your body, but believe me, it is very, very important. I do not believe that we should be interfering with a healthy pancreas. If you're diabetic, Mm -hmm. your pancreas is already had some damage or is not functioning as it should be. And so this medication is kind of almost like your thyroid, you know, your thyroid medications. Yeah. It's trying yeah. to fix a problem that already exists. Yeah. But I don't believe that we should be giving thyroid hormone hormones to somebody who has a healthy thyroid. Totally. And I don't believe that we should be giving um, this medication to someone with a healthy pancreas. And yeah. just in case people think, oh, who would ever take thyroid hormone? Lots of people in the fitness industry are taking thyroid hormone as a way to lose weight. I'm sure. And it is not okay to mess with the body. I'm telling you, the body doesn't like being messed with. Leave it alone and it will do its job. Interfere and it will get upset and it will cause damage in the long term. So Mm -hmm. whoever these people are thinking, oh yeah, I'm just going to stay on 2.4 milligrams, it'll be fine. No, it won't. The studies are really clear. Just look at the graph. It's so obvious, but they just lie. People are lying about it. It's amazing. Wow. Kind of in that vein, this listener says... My labs are normal. I am exercising consistently and dieting, but I'm gaining weight. What's next? Stop dieting. Really, you need to eat more. The answer is very, very clear. Please stop restricting because, as I said, there is a physiological process. In the first year when you start restricting, for the first uh, 16 weeks, you you lose the most amount of weight. And then it slows down and you will hit peak of weight loss loss which is called it's either nadir or nadir i don't know how we pronounce it in different countries it's spelled n-a-d-i-r and it's basically the peak that is the maximum amount of weight you'll ever lose and then what happens is you slowly begin to regain and we see this usually like i said between 10 months and one year and after that you'll steadily begin to regain until year five and the speed at which you regain very much depends on what happens next but nine up to 98 percent of people will have regained all the weight they lost within five years and up to two-thirds of people will end up being heavier than when they first started and so what i will say to this individual is i hear you i know why you're doing this i'm not blaming you but if you really care about your health and you care about your well-being you've entered it into phase two Even if you entered into phase two early, 
Phase two is not something that you can change. It happens even when you're on these drugs. It happens after bariatric surgery. It always happens. Mm -hmm. So um, you'd be better off not starving yourself, uh, start eating more, bring some gentle nutrition in. And I I would advise, again, I'm not an expert, speak to a a weight neutral dietitian or nutritionist. Mm -hmm. Somebody did ask a question about bloating. Mm. This is something that I hear all the time. I think there are a lot of misconceptions about it because I think bloating has become a code word for fat Mm. or, you know, I feel bloated Mm. has become a code word for I feel fat. But bloating is a real thing and um, it's usually a sign of something being wrong. So this person says, how do I deal with bloating? Right. So, Okay, if you've suddenly developed bloating, a sensation of literally kind of like your abdomen, traditionally your abdomen is protruding, you feel like it's, it's you know, like there's something in there that wasn't there before and you constantly feel, I don't know how to describe bloated apart from bloated, so that's not very helpful. But if that sort of happens over <laughs> a period of a few weeks or months, uh, this is always something that should be investigated. And we we take this very seriously, but it will be constant. It will be chronic. It won't be like, Today I don't feel bloated and tomorrow I feel bloated. It will be a chronic Mm. thing that you notice more and more and more. Like joint pain. If you have joint pain once or twice a month, that's less of a worry. If you're getting joint pain every single day, go see your doctor. So the bloating in itself can be a problem. If you are experiencing bloating that comes and goes and comes and goes, it could be hormonal and uh, it could be because you're constipated or it could just be normal for you. And then you have to ask Mm. yourself, like, why is this bothering me? Is it because of the feeling and the sensation or is it because of what I look like in my clothes? If it's because of what I look like in my clothes, then... There's nothing you can do <laughs> if it's because bigger of the pants. Thing, all of a sudden, yeah, get bigger pants. That's exactly it. If it's <laughs> something that you, um, if it's like the sensation, then there may be medications that you can try. Um, there could be like sort of herbal remedies that you could try. Peppermint often works well. Like there's things you can try. But, Is bloating uh, gas? Uh, so it, <laughs> the sensation of bloating can, as you say, represent something Feel else like going gas. on. Yeah, but it can feel like gas, and it can. Okay. It often is mistaken. It's often a symptom of constipation, and we mistake constipation. Um, a lot of us are constipated and don't realize it um, because we're not getting enough fluids in the day. And so sometimes it is just like gas, as you say, or it's like a feeling of fullness because there is actually lots of stool sitting in your in your mm-hmm. you know intestine. So and you need a tummy these massage. Are two things that you can yeah get a t- yes, but but if it's if like I say if it's constant and it's not going away, go see a doctor. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned joints. Yes. This is a question that I've gotten from people. Are are people in larger bodies more likely to have joint issues? Yeah. I love having this argument because people always go, wait on the joints, it's pressure, yeah. it's force yeah. on the joints. Yeah. To which I say, look, if we're talking about force, let's get the physics involved. So jumping, I think it's about eight times as much force as walking. So people who jump frequently are putting much more force on their joints. Mm-hmm. If you're right that actually it's about force on the joints, then all basketball players would have knee and hip arthritis from a very young age. Okay? Because basketball ah. involves a lot of jumping. A lot of jumping. So, or the people who jump rope. Jumpiest or, sport you know, ever. Exercise. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We know this is not true. In fact, we know that forces on the joints can cause, can actually cause a buildup of the cartilage within the joints and actually strengthen joints, um, which is why mm-hmm. a lot of us, when we have a joint injury and we're rehabbing that joint into, uh, injury, what do we do? We go and do muscle strengthening exercises. We lift weights, right? Mm-hmm. We, we increase the forces on our joints. So 
It is complete nonsense that has never been proven. And most, even I have to say, even orthopedists, the vast majority of orthopedists agree with me. Um, so joint problems, there's two types. One is like the soft tissue around the joints. And that's almost always caused by, uh, you know, it could be repetitive strain or it could be posture, it could be all sorts of things, but that can be managed no matter what size your body is. If it's osteoarthritis, in other words, like, you know, wear and tear arthritis of the joints, we don't know what causes that. Uh, but we, again, it's genetics predominantly, uh, but it's, it's an, it's not a condition that affects fat people only. It affects lots of thin people. It also affects people who have lots of trauma on their joints from like playing sports and stuff. So mm -hmm. we know it's not a weight thing. It's more our perception of people with joint pain. So when you see, uh, you know, a, like a soldier or, uh, you know, athlete with a, a bum knee, you'll feel automatically, oh man, that's that's sad, like poor you. And you, if you feel kind of like yeah. empathy for them, when yeah. you see a fat person with a bum knee, you're like, you know, so and it's, you, right? It's, yeah. So mm -hmm. it's more the uh, the way that we treat people and the way that people see themselves that's causing the problem. Nothing else. Yeah. There was another person that submitted like, why won't people give uh, me as a bigger person knee surgery or breast reduction, but it's okay for anorexic people? I don't. Right. So this is a I don't know huge that extreme. And we talked. We talked about two-tier healthcare systems. The one thing I will say is that our health is being held to ransom now. Our healthcare is being held to ransom based on body mass index. There's lots of really sad reasons for why that is. It has to do with uh, doctors and insurance companies and nothing to do with your body. If you are well enough to have bariatric surgery, you are well enough to have a, a knee surgery. And yeah. they know this. It is unethical. And as far as I'm concerned, it's a human rights issue. I believe it's a legal issue. I hope one day there is a lawyer out there that will contest this uh, legally because uh, this is a blatant form of discrimination because there is no reason why a person can't have an operation in a bigger body like there's just none mm -hmm. because like i said it's possible to anesthetize a person because bariatric surgery and For it's sure. perfectly possible to rehabilitate a person because we have in the past so it's enough this has to stop mm -hmm. but it, it's all about doctors and insurance companies and nothing to do with health and evidence wow okay and i know this isn't about bodies in general but it, it, mm. it is about bodies I'm always wondering how important or necessary is knowing someone's gender to medical professionals? Because on every like sheet, it's always like you have to cross off male or female or whatever. I know you are a non-binary person. I go by she, by they pronouns. I'm always like, what do I put? And then for some reason, I'm always compelled to just strike out female because I'm like, there's got to be a reason like and this this might be helpful to them to know. So like. It's interesting. It's important to know whether, like, for example, you have a uterus, because in some cases we need to know, is there a possibility that you're pregnant? So, mm -hmm. I mean, th there are there are certain things that, that it is helpful to know, but we can ask those questions. Like, any chance you could be pregnant? Do you have yeah. a uterus? Yeah. I, I think the problem is that when we look at uh, all scientific evidence, all medical evidence, uh, transgender people are are completely absent and always have been. So there is no, so for example, I'm looking at polycystic ovarian syndrome and I'm looking for the evidence. It will talk about women. There is no evidence for trans men or trans masculine people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who do not identify as women, but have polycystic ovarian syndrome. So the evidence is lacking. We do not know how uh, being trans, and especially if you're being trans and you having gender affirming care that involves 
medications, etc., how that impacts your body. So I think it's it's lazy. It's like asking BMI instead of asking about health. Oh, I can just check your BMI and then I can make some decisions about your health that mm. are not based in reality. I think the same thing with gender. Oh, okay, so you're female, so I can make some assumptions. And, uh, you know, it's just laziness. And I understand why they do it, but it has to stop. It mm. also, you know, should have an option for male, then female, and then non-binary, and then prefer not to say, like, there should be multiple options, again, for, mm-hmm. from a human rights point of view. But or maybe even checking off the parts because like just knowing you're a cis female, like you don't necessarily have breasts, something, you know, exactly. And, and, um, you know, like uh, even things like that wasn't a dig at Emily, but she did just make up. No, no, no. I'm sorry. (laughs) I was just thinking, I was just thinking that it would be really funny if it was written out. Like, which do you have? Dick, balls, titties. Totally. I would love I would love to fill in that questionnaire. If someone had to read that questionnaire, I'd probably put some drawings by the side, you know? Or like, could any, could any of these areas be affected? Do not have. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but but come on, we we we're professionals. We should be able to ask these questions. And 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 yeah. you as patients do share a whole bunch of really private stuff with us. But if you want to know, just ask. Yeah. The most important thing is to know how a person identifies and what pronouns they want to use. And that unfortunately by just being, you know, crossing male and female, and I have this all the time. Like I'm constantly dead named and I'm constantly misgendered mm-hmm. by my doctor. Who, mm-hmm. who they, the ones that know me try really hard, but most people don't bother to learn. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for answering all of our questions. I'm sure we'll have even more after this episode. <laughs> I will say for those who are interested in in weight loss medications, I'm literally about to bring out a book in the next couple of weeks. So if you Ooh. have, yeah. So if you if you're like I still don't know enough about weight loss medications. There will be an ebook, you know, it'll be one of those kind of you can read it in half a day. It's not going to be a big book. But yeah, I think it's important to have that book out there. Mm-hmm. That's very exciting. That's awesome. there's, I feel like there's so much misinformation right. out there. And yeah. we, none of us know what we're talking about when we talk about <laughs> it. But we're all very curious. Yes. So that's that's so helpful. Asher, where can they find you? I'm the fat doctor on Instagram or fatdoctor.co.uk, the website that gives you all the information and up-to-date stuff that I'm offering. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us. Should we do a little reflection on this past week? Yes, please. Okay. We have a new segment this week called Sweet or Salty presented by Angie's Boom Chicka Pop. Angie's Boom Chicka Pop popcorn brings you a boom of bold, craveable flavor that you can enjoy at any time on any occasion. Whether you're taking a snack size bag on the go or unwinding with your favorite flavor and favorite show at the end of the day, Boom Chicka Pop is the perfect delicious snack. Now, let's share what moments of our week have been sweet or salty. I can't wait. Should we start with sweet? You can start with sweet. I'm going to start with salty, but let's hear sweet first. Okay. So I'm always on the hunt for a new vocab word Mm -hmm. that I can incorporate into my everyday vernacular. Mm -hmm. And I rediscovered a word this week that I I just love. Okay. And I'm going to be using it quite often from now on. What's the word? Hoodwinked. Hoodwinked. It's a synonym for being fooled. Mm. And I just think it's such a good word. Yeah. Do you do this? Like, I, I feel like I can't be the only one who notices words and thinks to themselves, Like, I'm going to use that word more often. I love words. I love Mm -hmm. the English language. Yeah. And I find myself using the same words over and over again. And Mm -hmm. it sounds stupid. Like, even the word stupid. I mean, there are so many other words that mean stupid. Mm -hmm. And I could be using other words. Or, like... Dumb. Foolish. uh, Uneducated. Uneducated. Ignorant. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. 
That's an ignorant thing to say. Mm-hmm. Honestly, that's a little bit stronger than stupid. I feel I like. say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but even like the word cool. Mm-hmm. I say the word cool mm-hmm. 75 times a day. Mm-hmm. It's lost all of its meaning. Bring groovy back. But I was just going to say that. I'm not even <laughs> really? kidding. Yeah. Groovy is such a groovy word. It is groovy. Now for my salty moment. Okay. I got a new dog. Yes. Everybody knows this. I announced this. Yahtzee. Yahtzee. And he is a sweet baby boy and he is classically handsome and just perfect in every way. However, Mm -hmm. he does have one flaw. He loves chewing pants. Oh. And particularly pants that are frayed at the bottom. Like you can see my jeans have frays on them. Mm Mm-hmm. He thinks that they're toys. Mm. And so I have had to accept the fact that I might never be able to wear nice pants again. Mm. And all my pants are ruined. I mean, not all of them, but all of the ones that I've worn in the past couple of weeks, they have holes in the ass. Yeah. Well, like, I could use would the bathroom say... without taking them off. <laughs> some people would say that he um, stylized your pants um, and that he actually made them. He distressed them. Yeah, he distressed your jeans. Could you buy him his own jeans? <laughs> to wear? Or? No, to, to <laughs> not on, you know, so he leaves yours alone. <laughs> I totally could, but I don't want to reinforce the the whole pants chewing habit. Like if I get him his own pair of jeans, then won't he think that jeans are for chewing? I don't know. Maybe we could call a dog person, but I feel like if he has his own jeans, it's like, go back to your jeans. Like not my jeans. Your jeans. Right. It's like sisters. Like, don't try to exactly. borrow my jeans. Yeah, you have, you your, have own your own jeans. jeans. <laughs> yeah. Get him jeans. <laughs> maybe I will. I also like I've been thinking about maybe when I leave the house to give him one of my T-shirts so that he could smell me because he he just gets a little mm-hmm. anxious when I leave. But then I had the same thought like, well, then he's going to think that my T-shirts are his are T-shirts. Ago. Yeah. And I don't want to do that. It sucks because. You want to raise a good boy. You want to raise a responsible citizen. Yes. You know, a responsible canine. Yeah. And everything I do, every move that I make, I think I'm fucking him up for life. Mm. Um, and it's really hard. It's hard being it's a parent. It's so hard being a parent. Yeah. No, I, dog parents, right in. Do you give your dog a pair of jeans? <laughs> Should you give your dog a pair of jeans? If they are chewing jeans. Also, does your dog wear jeans? Because I also would love to see a picture. I would love to see some quadruped jeans. (laughs) I would be obsessed. What was your sweet and salty moment? Okay, so I'm going to start with salty. I went to the salty beach location of Atlantic City. Ooh, salt air. Salt air. Crap. Uh, just yeah, a terrible garbage, garbage place. <laughs> Syringes in the ocean. Yeah. A lot of, lot of action in a negative way. And I was there and I got the worst sunburn I oh, have I had. Saw, I, you sent me a picture. Yeah, like, I don't know. I, I, I touted my skincare with the, oh, I just used sunscreen. Every year, though, I do forget about how susceptible I am to burning, especially on like the first nice day of the year. Yeah. And I just I get very excited about soaking it in Mm -hmm. and whatever. And my boyfriend kept saying to me, like, we need to go back inside. We need to put on sunscreen or whatever. And I was like, you, you know, like as if (laughs) this isn't something that I like fully back and like whatever. No, but but it really is always on the first those early spring days mm-hmm. that 
you don't realize how strong the sun is and you don't realize how weak your skin is. Yeah. And it was super weak and I was out all day and my whole face got burnt, my whole chest, my arms, oddly not my neck. So just like a weird... Were you wearing a turtleneck by any chance? No, I just have a chin, I guess, that like... Blocks the sun. Yeah. It's very angular. Yeah. So that that was a little salty. However, I turned it into a sweet thing. I have a new thing that I'm doing called a fakeation, where you go on a fake vacation and you post it super aesthetic so nobody knows where you are and they assume that you're on like a very fancy trip. And that's what I did in AC. I just like cropped out all the children in the pools. Where was I? Ibiza? Like, it was- <laughs> Wait a second. I've done this before, but I never had a word for it. And that's the perfect word. A vacation. A vacation. Yeah. Like you make everything look way more aesthetic than exactly. it actually is. Yeah. That's and I did. I saw your post and it was very aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And I faked a lot of people out. My own sister was like, "Where are you?" It was like, <laughs> "I'm in the south of France, in Atlantic City." Yeah. <laughs> I stepped on a syringe by accident. Yeah, um, that is so good. That's Thank so you. good. But what does that have to do with the sunburn specifically? Like, well, it was even more convincing that I was on vacation when I had to post. I fucked around and found out and a bunch of aloe. Yeah. People were like, she is abroad. She's in St. Bart's. Mm-hmm. So that was my sweet moment. And I hope to do more vacations in the future. My next one is going to be to Japan, a sweet trip to it's just a Japanese market in New Jersey, but we're going to make it really aesthetic. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. I need some aesthetic shots of Pocky sticks. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I was wondering if your dad has access to your your social media. God, I I hope he hasn't watched. He hasn't said anything to me. So is it one of those things that he wouldn't say anything? Remy's dad is a dermatologist for anyone who isn't caught up. They know. (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler alert. They know. Um, Uh, Yeah. No, he would be pissed. But also, I think he knows that I get so pissed when it does happen. Like, I'm not happy that this happened. Of course not. I'm just trying to make it a a sweet moment because I also did see something that was like a sunburn is a scar. And I was like, it is. Well, I don't know if it really is because it doesn't last. It, It don't scars technically last like they stay on you. Sunburns sometimes do, too. They like affect your skin. I mean, I have heard that with every sunburn. Like I feel more cracked. I mean, it's possible here. I, I'm going to give you a silver lining right now, mm-hmm. and it may not even be the one that you thought of. Mm. You will probably be less likely to get sunburned this summer because you've already had one. So I feel like once you break that seal and I'm just that talking is not a thing. I mean, from personal experience, you when think? yeah, because when you haven't been exposed all winter and then you get a shock to the system of the sunburn. Yeah. I'm not even talking physiologically. I'm talking mentally. Mm. You're way oh, more mentally aware. 100%. No, yeah. this was my like Rude person awakening. making me smoke a pack of cigarettes and I never want to do it again. Yes. Yeah. This sucked. You were tomato red. Yeah. And I, I, I skipped out on a class we were going to do because I was like, there's no way <laughs> I'm going to work out and be like itchy and uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. So and I, I totally that was understood kind of that. sweet, too. I <laughs> had to, we missed had to it. skip it. Yeah. I actually I hadn't slept at all the night before because I had a two. 30 wake up call for mm-hmm. my flight home. So I was secretly happy that we didn't have to go to that class. But 
I'm excited to um, we will try it eventually. try it and talk about it with you. We're going to be trying 305 yes. fitness. It's like a big dance party. So Can't wait. we'll get into that. Yeah. But uh, that concludes our sweet and salty segment. Yeah. Featuring Boom Chicka Pop. When it comes to snacking, sweet and salty is the perfect combination. With delicious, bold flavors like sweet and salty kettle corn, white cheddar, and sea salt, Angie's Boom Chicka Pop is the perfect match for every craving. I personally love the kettle corn flavor. It is my favorite flavor. I got a giant bag of it. I mean, I don't even know how many ounces this thing was, but it was bigger than my nephew, body size wise. And I've gone through the entire thing in a matter of a week and a half. Yeah. I'm addicted to it. I need more. Yeah. I've loved having my big bag around because if I don't have something like at hand in the morning for breakfast or whatever, I'm just like, this will do. This is um, a side note, but you can actually eat the kettle corn as cereal if you're craving cereal, but you don't have any cereal. Yeah. It's the same fucking thing. Just put it in a bowl, that add some milk. Crazy. I've done it before. Okay. Not recently, but I have done it before and it's very good. It's also sweet. Just give it a try. I, I see you making that face. Don't knock it till you tried it. We're going to... Sounds texturally weird. You have to eat it fast. It's going to okay. get soggy. It's going to get soggy <laughs> quicker than traditional cereal. But file that under. Don't knock it till you try it. Okay. Also... You can try Angie's Boom Chicka Pop for yourself by visiting boomchickapop.com. That's B-O-O-M-C-H-I-C-K-A-P-O-P.com. Guys, that's it for today's episode. Be sure to send your questions to DST at Betches.com to get them answered. And follow us at Diet Starts Tomorrow on Instagram. If you like this episode, please write us a review. And don't forget to check out our DST merch on shop.betches.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And of course, follow me at Lubination. Follow me at Remy Casimir, and we're always with you through thick and thin. Diet Starts Tomorrow is produced by Sean Kilby, Jorge Morales-Pico, and Aliza Zinn. Editing by Sean Kilby. Social media by Aliza Zinn. Guest booking by Ali Friedlander. Be sure to follow Diet Starts Tomorrow on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And send us your emails to dst at betches.com or your voicemails to 212-287-5650. Betches.